Welcome to NASA in Silicon Valley, episode 63. With me again for the intro is Miss Abby Tabor. Welcome, Hi. Abby. Hi, Matt. Thank you. Tell us a little bit about our guest today. Okay, so today we're talking with Chris Potter, who is one of these biologists by training who didn't mm -hmm. know he could someday end up working at NASA. So he studied ecology, okay. and today he is an earth scientist with NASA Ames, and he's been simulating global systems, Earth's climate system, working on modeling, that sort of thing. But also, more recently, he's been looking at specific areas of the globe and how are they changing more quickly than others. For example, mm -hmm. he's been up in Alaska and he's on the ground out in the forests of Alaska looking at how wildfires, which have gotten more intense and are burning hotter, are changing the landscape there. So he's there looking at how the permafrost is melting okay. because the fires have burnt everything down to the surface and he's digging in the soil and taking thermal images and sticking probes in the ground to explore how the, the earth is changing up there. Super relevant for today. Yeah. Uh, we recorded this episode a while back, but, you know, speaking of how, you know, all the crazy forest fires that are happening yeah. in Northern California, it's all very relevant to really what we're intense, living right now. Yeah. So before we jump into the episode, a couple, a little bit of housekeeping uh, for, we would love to hear your comments about the podcast and ways we can improve things. We are on social media. We're using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. We also have a phone line you can now call in on. That's 650-604-1400. And a reminder, we are a NASA podcast, but we are not the only NASA podcast. Our friends over at the Johnson Space Center have one called Houston. We have a podcast. Our friends over at headquarters and really it's uh, content from all over the agency have one called This Week at NASA that's both on YouTube and also there's an audio version. And then we have a big RSS feed called NASA Casts where you can catch all of the NASA content in one big feed. Um, we would love it if you guys leave us a review. We're on iTunes, Google Play Music, SoundCloud. We just started putting up audio versions on YouTube. Um, of course, the RSS feed, you can plug it into any podcast app and that all works. Uh, the reviews are really a cool way to help other people find the content. But that's enough for of the housekeeping, but for today's episode. <laughs> for today, let's listen to Chris Potter. How did you end up joining NASA? How did you end up in this area in Silicon Valley? I joined NASA in 1991 okay. uh, as a NASA postdoc. There's been a program here for a long time to bring new PhDs into NASA. And so I came out here to join one of the Earth scientists who was working here um, named Pam Matson. She's since gone on to Stanford. Mm -hmm. She's the dean of Earth Science at Stanford, but she worked here. And, and so I came here to work with her and develop some computer models that um, computer simulation models of the Earth system okay. uh, that didn't exist at the time. And I had a background in in modeling uh, of what we call the terrestrial part of the Earth, the, the land surfaces, the ecosystems on, on land. And that's what they wanted. So I came out here to fill that position and stayed. We just really liked it out here. And um, had to commute for the, from the city for a few years, <laughs> but that was, that was okay. We made it work and then eventually moved to Silicon Valley. Did you do your postdoctoral work in earth science or mm -hmm. like when you were growing up as a kid, you were you always had an eye focused towards like wanting to work, you know, for NASA dealing with space or how, how does that whole play into no, it? No, I didn't uh, ever think of that I'd work for NASA when I was uh, 
studying biology, which is <laughs> yeah. my, which is what my background is in. Uh, all my degrees are in biology and, e- and ecology in particular. But you know, like a lot of people back then, I didn't think NASA was the place to do that. You know, I thought if I was going to work for the government, maybe I'd work for the Park Service or yeah, the, the Bureau Bar- of Land Management or yeah, something. Yeah, well, maybe not. They, I didn't <laughs> even know about that they existed back then because I grew up in the East. But uh, you know, the Environmental Protection Agency, some, something like that. But as it turns out, NASA has the biggest environmental science budget of any, arguably any agency in the world. So we are number one in terms of funding both basic research in uh, earth sciences and um, and in, of course, providing all the technology that it takes to get that job done, the satellites, the aircraft, uh, the, the data systems, storage, um, which is a huge you know, part of the uh, of the whole endeavor at this point. Yeah, well, it's one of those things where it's like twofold. One one thing I always think of is, you know, when you're looking at exoplanets, you're looking at the other you know planets in our solar system. It's really helpful to understand our own planet because <laughs> like we have a we're we're sitting on top of one big example of life that works and that exists. Right. And if you're out looking for life, you know, if you don't really fundamentally understand what our own planet looks like, then mm-hmm. how do you even know what you're looking for? Um, but then mm-hmm. also on the flip side, a lot of the Earth science stuff it involves sending satellites up, and there's not mm-hmm. a lot of like government agencies that are particularly skilled in sending satellites up. I mean, obviously NASA, I'm sure, obviously the Air Force, but it's like, mm-hmm. it's one of those things where, you know, to put things in the air, it's, you know, it's a very particular set of skills. Yeah, yeah, it is. And um, NASA's been at it for a long time. Uh, so has uh, NOAA, the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Association, who are always, you know, close partners with NASA because they uh, they have the weather satellites. Mm-hmm. So it is, it's not NASA's job to forecast the weather or monitor the weather, but it is it is NASA's role to look in the long term. That's the difference between weather and climate, of course. Climate yeah. is weather over uh, hundreds of years. And um, so that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're supposed to be monitoring the long-term changes in the Earth and uh, looking for um, new undiscovered sort of phenomenon that are going on with our climate system or our ocean chemistry or our land use change patterns in the same way we would we would be looking for them if we were looking at Mars we'd be trying to discover something new and and then share that with the rest of the scientific community and we're certainly not alone as a space agency too there all the developed countries in the world have large space agencies that um, are starting to rival NASA's uh, the European Space Agency the Brazilian Space Agency the Chinese and the Indian space agencies all have uh, satellites that are starting to rival mm-hmm. ours. So we need to we need to keep our game up. But in the meantime, we can benefit from all the data they're collecting as well, because um, as long as there's sharing of open sharing of these satellite image data sets or measurements of the atmosphere, um, we can all benefit and push climate science or any other sort of earth science ahead um, for the benefit of you know. Um, the scientific ne- negotiating, but well, but more practically, you know, negotiating scientific treaties, treaties among oh, wow. nations that whether it has to do with the you know use of the oceans, the use of, of space, the use of the, of the atmosphere, or greenhouse gas emission reductions, all of it. It's our job um, as scientists, NASA scientists, to provide the best scientific information uh, so that decision makers and politicians can uh, make wise decisions that includes the data. 
And so, so going back a little bit, when you first came to Ames, when you first came to NASA, what exactly were you working on? Obviously, something in Earth science, but right. what was what was your day to day looking like? Uh, when we first got here, our our role was to work with a team of scientists. Some here at NASA Ames, uh, there were other key members at Stanford University and the Carnegie Institution um, of Washington there at Stanford, uh, who is a leader in global change policy and science of all kinds, and uh, also with Goddard Space Flight mm-hmm. Center as a partner and a f- several other universities. We're working as a team to develop the first model, global model, of the Earth's surfaces and the greenhouse gas emissions that they were um, contributing to the atmosphere. No one had ever developed one before. so. That was our challenge, and we succeeded in a couple years to develop that model to publish the first paper that used NASA satellite data to make it much more authentic, uh, mm-hmm. true to the ground observations that we were collecting at the time, which were pretty rudimentary but uh, compared to what we collect now, but they were still uh, very unique and, and stunning images of the Earth. So we created what was called the first breathing Earth model and animated it, and it uh, even made a piece on CNN when oh, it first nice. came out. Yeah, cool. So um, must have been a slow news day. <laughs> um, so wh- wh- what is your day to day? What are you working on right now? I I heard something mm-hmm. along the lines of going to Alaska and having a, and having a bear gun. Well, <laughs> so talk yeah. to me a little bit about that. Well, we're doing much advanced versions of the same things I did when I came here. Yeah, but now we we um, are using much much more detailed satellite images and aircraft images of different parts of the world so while we're still simulating the whole globe as a as a planet and a global system more and more we're trying to uh, isolate specific areas of the world where we don't have a good understanding of what's going on there yet alaska Mm -hmm. is one of those places it's warming much more quickly than our part of the world the temperate or tropical areas it's uh the ice under the soil and the soil is melting very quickly the lakes are not freezing over the way they used to even 20 years ago and if you ask any alaskan they'll tell you you know it's not like it used to be here we are having trouble hunting and fishing and doing all the traditional things we our ancestors used to do because we don't know every spring whether the ice will be frozen or uh or thawing and we might go right through the ice when we try to go out to our traditional hunting fishing trapping grounds so um that's why we're there in alaska nasa has a program uh, that it's funded through its terrestrial ecology program in Washington, part of the uh, Earth Science uh, Mission Directorate there. And uh, it's called ABOVE. It stands for the Arctic Boreal Vulnerability <laughs> and Observation Experiment. Because, of course, there's going to be an acronym for it. it. Of course. <laughs> it's, and ABOVE sounds pretty good. It's sort of above the latitudes where we normally uh, live and work. And it covers most of Alaska, well, all of Alaska, and parts of uh, northern Canada which are also experiencing rapid uh, climate warming. And um, and so there are teams out there every summer and there are aircraft flying over um, the whole state right now, uh, even as we speak, trying to understand what's changing, where it's changing, what are the consequences for both the atmospheric changes from greenhouse gas emissions that may be uh, going up as a result of warming, uh, that's our hypothesis. That's yeah. a working hypothesis. But also on the ground, there are uh, vulnerabilities to larger and more intense, hotter fires, wildfires there in the forest. And uh, as these areas burn, it changes the 
radiation budget of that area and it may uh, burn right down into the soil and uh, disrupt the permafrost and cause the whole entire area to sort of collapse in a big oh, hole. Because, wow. <laughs> I mean, the permafrost, like the, the ice crystals, the frozen, I mean, it, it's propping it up. You know, it's water freezes, it, it expands, it's holding, right. it's like stable. Yeah. You, you get rid of that, you're going to have a bad time. Yeah, it's just it's just like... Standing on on top of a pond and 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 having all the ice melt out from under you, you know, there's a thin layer of soil over the pond. But as soon as it collapses, uh, you're going to create um, a, a very liquid, um, <laughs> slushy environment, and yeah. um, the trees collapse into it if they were on top of it. And so the whole system changes overnight, and um, and that means that uh, what you were using it for in terms of either hunting or trapping or whatever uh, or just recreation you have to change your plan and and beyond that the atmosphere is loaded up with these greenhouse gases that were stored in the soil and the peat moss there's a lot of peat moss in most of these forested areas and that's been stored there for tens of thousands of years and now we are allowing it to uh, come out during the fires when I say we are um, that assumes that uh, connecting the dots that people are responsible for the greenhouse gas emissions, increasing greenhouse gas emissions to the atmosphere that are warming the climate that are causing more fires. So those that's the chain of um, sort of uh, direct indirect effects that mm-hmm. lead us back to the human nature of uh, more in- intense and hotter wildfires throughout the whole West, from California, Southern California, all the yeah. way up to Alaska. So you'd mentioned, you know, obviously you'll be there on the ground. You mentioned like the airplanes flying over. Is this like a combination of like all the different data points where I'm, I'm imagining and you tell me if I'm wrong, that, you, you know, you have satellites that are taking mm-hmm. some measurements, you know, you know, as you know, as they can, as they end up ha- passing over. Mm-hmm. But combining that data with airborne data, combining that with data you grab on the ground and that mm-hmm. all of those with their powers combined help yeah. paint a good mosaic of what the of what's going on. Right, right. It, yeah, it's called basically scaling down from the satellite image which NASA's best image uh, would give you um, a ground resolution data point that is about the size of a tennis court. And um, that's our best satellite for that. But airborne data can get you down to a, a few feet mm-hmm. uh, resolution on the ground, so you can start to see individual patches and trees and little ponds. And uh, and then, of course, right on the ground, uh, we'll measure it at a few centimeters resolution. So we want to put all the pieces together and make sure as we reassemble them from the ground to the aircraft to the satellite that it all averages up again. Mm-hmm. So. And that way we much better understand what our satellite is giving us. The satellite we use for this study, for the most part, is the Landsat satellite. Okay. We're on the eighth Landsat satellite since it was launched in the early 1970s. It's considered a national asset and is not subject to budget cuts. (laughs) So pretty soon we'll launch Landsat 9. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's continuity in the program going forward if anything happens to Landsat 8. And uh, we've always had, we've had over 30 years now of continuous observations every two weeks. So the satellite goes over every two weeks and uh, gives us uh, hopefully a clear image. In Alaska, it's very cloudy at times. So um, we're happy to get a clear image every month. And that's usually usually adequate for us to monitor uh, from, certainly from year to year, what has happened to to the surfaces and the forest cover and the tundra cover, which is north of where I'm going to go 
for I'm going to the interior of Alaska where the forests are being affected. But north of there, uh, the shrubs are are really doing well. They're growing into the tundra area and making it uh, even greener uh, in those areas. So that's changing the habitat for all kinds of wildlife. So yeah. talk about but what does your day-to-day look like? Because, you oh, know, okay. you're on the ground uh-huh. dealing with stuff. So um, what, what kind of things trip? you During the strip? Yeah, yeah. What yeah. do you have to prepare for? What do you so, anticipate? Yeah, we need we need to get in our, in our mode of transportation okay. in the morning and get out to uh, maybe a travel five miles out of the town we're staying in to get to an area that we can see from the satellite imagery had been burned. And there were large, large fires up there, unprecedentedly large and hot fires in 2015. So now we're mm-hmm. two years after that. And so we will go to those areas we can see on the satellite imagery that had different stages of the burns, barely burned versus burned to the ground and charred. And we'll sample in all these different places, sample the soils, yeah. sample the thermal signature with thermal cameras and, and take probes and put them into the into the ground and then take samples and bags back of the soil itself to measure the carbon in the soil and then and then we'll go to the next site and we'll just keep doing this over and over <laughs> again until we get a large enough statistically large enough data set to to compare to the satellite and airborne imagery. What is your timeline looking like? So breaking the fourth wall a little bit. Right now we're in the middle of July. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand you guys is a trip happening in September or are you hoping no, to have it's happening in a week. Uh, happens in a week. Mm-hmm. And but you're like Later on, anticipating getting results, getting things mm-hmm. coming in, writing papers, or, or however. Absolutely, that works out, yeah. So. I mean, uh, I've designed this one so that we can uh, collect the actual data, most of it, ninety percent of it, there, right in the field, write it down, or have it in our in our digital devices, and then I'll just immediately download it back to my computer that night and mm-hmm. put it all on a flash drive to bring back. And but you know, so the soil samples will take a bit, little bit longer. We'll have to transport them back here, and they'll be analyzed in a month. So by uh, January, when there's the next big team meeting of this above project, we'll take the results there, present it to our colleagues, be writing the papers, um, sharing all the results and comparing with other folks' um, perspectives on the same and findings on the same kind of topics. They're working groups on fire, mm-hmm. on carbon, on animal movement. It's a big project and uh, it involves many, many universities across the country and in Alaska. Yeah, I anticipate we'll release this episode in the future so people are hearing us from the past. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> By the time this airs, you know, you'll have already come back from your trip and started working on sure. some, of, some of that data. Sure, we'll results. be working on the data for the next couple months after I get back. But um, it should go quickly because we've set it all up for over a year now, and we know exactly how we're going to plug it into our into our plan and our formulas, and, and we need to have it ready by the end of the year for presentation to, uh, to scientific conferences. And we still publish papers uh, in scientific journals. That is one of the main re- mm-hmm. ways we get evaluated here as scientists, still at NASA. And so um, even though those journals are all digital online, we still <laughs> have to go through the peer review process, we call it, and have our colleagues uh, pass muster with our colleagues and get their comments and, and feedback and improvements on what we're doing. So that'll happen in the next couple months. Excellent. So, and then talk a little bit about um, some of the, the different groups that you have to work with to do something like this. I'm imagining there's the Bureau of Land Management, there's probably like the Alaska government, or, or mm-hmm. I don't know, or are there other groups, other things? That, is this kind of like an interagency thing that you're kind of working well, above, with? Well, above, yeah. Above is uh, all across Alaska, and it's even yeah. into Canada, so you have to work with Canadian agencies as well to some degree. 
but in Alaska, the, the players are the Department of Interior, which includes Fish and Wildlife Service, and the Bureau of Land Management. There are scientists from the U.S. Geological Survey in yeah. Alaska who are very experienced, who we collaborate with. And then there are local and tribal lands that we work on. Um, I'm going to be working mostly on local lands and, and um, those that are used by uh, the tribal native people in Alaska. So they are very important to uh, maybe the most important people to bring into this whole um, discussion because they are the ones uh, impacted in using mm-hmm, really? Alaska yeah. wildlife fisheries and are very dependent on the energy resources coming from Alaska that are also vulnerable to to the destruction or alteration of the infrastructure for pipelines and shipping and um, all the things that we need to get energy resources out of Alaska. Um, so, yeah, we, we I before I ever went, the first call I made on this trip was to the tribal uh, leaders in in the in the town where I was going to because I wanted to make sure they were uh, <laughs> uh, up front uh, in understanding what we're doing and involved. Excellent. So talking about like the interagency stuff, I'd imagine that's not just for this Alaska trip. It's probably you guys work with them on a, on a regular basis, especially here in California. So is there any other stuff that's going on as well? Or Yeah. Uh, some really interesting interagency agreements we have in place for research have developed over years and years of discussions and collaboration. Uh, the one that I'm leading and spend most of my time on is with the Bureau of Land Management, which is in the Department of Interior, and they own uh, or are responsible for vast lands in Southern California and throughout the desert Southwest. There are places like in the Mojave Desert and mm-hmm. what's called the Sonoran Desert or the Lower Colorado Desert in Riverside County and Imperial County, where um, the, their lands have been used in the past for um, activities such as off-road vehicle usage, recreation, hiking, campgrounds, and that sort of thing, and grazing, of course, uh, by cattle. So, But most recently, they have, um, at the urging of the state of California and Governor Brown, um, have uh, struck a deal with with the energy companies in Southern California and PG&E, and also with environmental groups across the state who are very much devoted to preserving the desert as a pristine ecosystem and the endangered species that live there, such as desert tortoises and other birds and amphibians. And that's called the DRECP. And uh, it was a landmark agreement between these, the government and the conservation and energy corporations to lease federal lands for solar energy development. Uh, the governor had a very ambitious um, goal of meeting 20 to 30 percent of our electricity needs as a state um, in the next decade through solar and wind energy. And so what was to be developed were these large solar uh, farms, photovoltaic or mirror-based sort of farms that would call them farms. You know, they're over many, many acres out in the desert, and they produce solar energy that's transported mainly back to Los Angeles um, uh, area and San Diego uh, counties. And so um, they are operational. There have been several big ones oh, wow. built on BLM lands over the last few years. It's a, they, and it's our job in a cooperation with BLM. We've been brought in by them, uh, invited, if you will, to use a remote sensing satellite imagery to monitor whether those solar energy developments have, are having any negative impacts on the desert environment. Oh, okay. Um, because that was part of the, the deal that was cut. Um, the BLM had to assure that they could... Uh, find any early evidence and monitor any um, adverse impacts to endangered species, 
to air quality because dust is a big problem there when you when you go up and down the roads and install yeah. anything new in the desert. Any disturbance to the fragile soil surfaces there with their our desert biological crust that you can barely see but are very important for stabilizing the surface. There are ancient desert pavements that have been there since before humans oh, wow. were here. Uh, and they, they need to be preserved. And so we are monitoring it month by month with, our again, our Landsat satellite and um, other airborne resources we have at our disposal to um, help the BLM demonstrate uh, whether there are have been any adverse changes so far. We, we don't see many, which is really good news because I think we can have solar energy coexist with, with a pristine desert. Oops, that was my phone. <laughs> <laughs> Just forget it. We'll yeah. leave it in. <laughs> so, you know, the, this energy development can uh, be environmentally friendly. It can be environmentally monitored so that we're pretty sure at this point without tracking every tortoise out there that their, their habitat is not being yeah. adversely impacted. Uh, you do see the solar energy developments. You can see them from uh, Google Earth. You can see them because they're very large. You can yeah. see them from, of course, our satellite imagery. Or if you're standing out there hiking across the, you know, your your desert uh, campground, you might see them in the distance. And they actually cool the desert surface more than the natural vegetation does even because um, they're designed to absorb the high energy visible radiation. Say, yeah. And so they're they're turning that visible radiation to energy rather than re-radiating it, re-radiating it back into the atmosphere, yeah. into the troposphere. So they are cooling the desert surface, and may even provide refuges and habitats for animals that may otherwise then not be, be able to find <laughs> to a cool place to hang out. Right. Yeah. If, and they are fenced off though from you yeah. know most large animals, but smaller ones could crawl through and and find some shade in there and. And they will, you know, they probably won't be there forever. They're, they can be removed, unlike a, you know, a coal mine or yeah. a fracking sort of uh, for natural gas. They, their long-term impacts on the environment will be negligible because they can always be taken right back out. Yeah. And we, we're also estimating how long it takes for the desert to, to recover completely from any sort of small disturbance like this. And generally, when a transmission line has been built through Southern California desert. Within about five years, uh, all the plants and vegetation around those lines have grown back in. So we're pretty confident that, that it's still a resilient ecosystem to minor disturbances like solar development. Excellent. So for folks who are listening, if you have any questions for Chris, we are on Twitter at NASA Ames. We are using the hashtag NASA Silicon Valley. Send us some questions on over. We'll hook back up over to Chris. But thanks for coming. This has been fun. Yes, it was my pleasure. Mm-hmm.